Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Nioka Naidu. Nioka always wanted someone to do something about the issues that plague our society. Then she realized she was that someone and she got straight to work. In 2014, she was selected as the Leadership Development Fellow in South Africa for the Climate Action Network International Working Group on International Climate Change Policy and Civil Society Coordination. In 2016, she started coordinating the Civil Society Working Group on the implementation of the Paris Agreement. Nyoka was also selected for the Mail and Guardian's 200 Young South Africans due to her experience in the environmental movement. In 2017, she was named by the ecologist as one of 10 global activists to defeat President Trump's climate change agenda. And she was listed by TreeShake as one of 76 South African voices speaking up for the environment. Nyoka attained her BSc in Environmental Science in her hometown of Durban at the University of KZN. She followed this up with a postgrad diploma in Sustainable Development from the Sustainability Institute and is now enrolled in the M4 program looking at climate transparency. Nyoka joined the GIZ in July 2018 in an advisory capacity. Her role supports and engages with the implementation of the Paris Agreement in the South African context. She currently works on climate finance, digitalization, and the IKI projects in South Africa. Nyoka's piece in Feminism Is was called Feminism and Diplomacy, and in that piece she said, For me, patriarchy is not just the dominance of masculine traits in society, but also an egocentric and anthropocentric approach to solving issues by presenting the illusion of choice rather than real choices. In my opinion, feminism means the intentional motion towards a holistic, ecocentric world by ending the dominant patriarchal and archaic establishment. So today I'll be talking with Nyoka about the links between feminism and climate change and what we can all do about them. Welcome, Nyoka. Hi, thank you so much for that introduction. It sounds quite interesting when you put it all together. So how, tell me a bit about how you came to become a climate activist. Um, it was really um, such a, I don't know, a, such an interesting moment because I was sitting um, in my second year BSc environmental science class and one of my friends was sitting next to me, Maps, and we're like, we're learning about development of clouds and climatology and how it's drastically changing. And after the class, um, we were like, but why are we not doing anything as environmentalists, as students. And it was, I think, the universe heard. And it was, I think, two weeks later that Kumi Naidu, and at the time he was the head of Greenpeace International, came to us to speak about what was happening at the Cop- just after the Copenhagen climate negotiations. And Max and I were like, I think it was meant to be. And then I started at Greenpeace as a volunteer and realized I found people that I wanted to work with and wanted to engage deeper with these, with these issues that I, I could understand from a scientific um, and theoretical background, 
but not on the social implications and the actual, you know, the real life impacts. So tell me a bit about why Greenpeace? Why was that the organization that you decided to join rather than one of the other global organizations? Honestly, um, it was my first introduction to the NGO space. And so I think I, I latched onto the idea after, after like hearing Kumi speak and um, then we decided to join because they had an, like an easy um, registration volunteer process. Um, it wasn't that I chose Greenpeace over any other organizations. It was at that point, Greenpeace Africa for me was the one that was readily available. And later on, when I finished my degree um, and got my first job um, at Project 90 by 2030 as an intern in Cape Town, looking at community partnerships, policy and research, and um, youth clubs and engagement, I realized there was actually so much more to the environmental space and so much complexity within non-governmental organizations in South Africa working in the environmental movement and also looking at social links and economic links. And so it really broadened my horizons, but it was that first step that I took of just trying something different as opposed to just being a student. Um, and I think Greenpeace was my door. And what is the one thing that has been the most exciting thing you've done in terms of the field of, as a climate activist? That, wow. Um, looking back and also hearing your introduction, I've, I've gotten to do things that I never imagined I would get to do or even that existed. For, um, so when I started at Greenpeace, I um, I wanted to learn how to dive and learn how to climb and do rope access, which I ended up doing because I wanted to get onto the Greenpeace ships and sail around the world and um, be that sort of activist. And then when I joined Project 90, I realized that there was different levels of engagement on the front line, working on policy, working with communities um, in terms of a solution-orientated space. And there's two things that come to mind. I think speaking at the UN um, retrospectively was such an enlightening experience because, I mean, speaking to a room full of diplomats, you think that your, your ideas and what you're saying will be heard and um, undertaken. And that was like a very, like, what should I say, encouraging experience. But retrospectively, I realized, you know, what diplomacy actually means in reality. Um, and so that was, in high, uh, was a highlight for me when I was 22. But looking back at like my climate activist career, um, working with communities um, and engaging um, with different um, spaces of people and talking about what do they see climate change policy as? And a lot of people ask me, so do you work in insurance? And I almost have to go back to, to thinking, well, it's not a usual space of engagement. So how do I engage people? Um, and how do I understand what their lived experience is um, so that we can work together and have this collective development. And I, 
And I had that for a long time working in communities. And I think that that's really shaped the way I look at policy now. Um, and specifically, we worked in a community um, called Msumbombu, looking at the, the water, energy, and food nexus and how to become self-sufficient as a community. And I think for me, that was a deep learning experience on what is needed versus having just discussions constantly. And I think that was deep um, action um, that I think is now necessarily now necessary in um, a more large scale. I think when people think what is in climate activists, they do think of the Greenpeace people going on the ship or climbing onto things and locking themselves on. But I think when you work in any field, you recognize that there's many points of intervention. And and like you say, one of the most important is getting community knowledge up onto higher platforms and making sure that communities are informed. So for people listening who have no idea what the Paris Agreement is and why it's important, can you give us a short explainer to just say why you think this is important work now in South Africa? So the Paris Agreement is a politically binding agreement of 197 countries globally to firstly say that climate change, anthropogenic climate change, meaning man-made climate change, is something we actually have to address immediately. And there's various aspects that are outlined um, in the agreement. And one of the key elements of the agreement is something called the nationally determined contributions. And that's something that the country puts forward. Um, so for example, South Africa put together a nationally determined contribution that was submitted to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, where the Paris Agreement was ratified. And there's nothing legally binding. A lot of people say there are elements to it that is legally binding and that's true, but as a whole agreement, it's not legally binding because not no country can take another country to court um, if they don't meet the agreement. And it was, it was a moment that was important um, globally for us to come together as, as all these different countries with all these different contexts to say, this goal is important. And for South Africa, um, in one aspect of the Paris Agreement, um, it talks about to decrease global temperature average increase, which is just like the global temperature, um, below two degrees. And that sounds relatively small um, in temperature increases. But for Southern Africa, um, it actually is double that amount. So when we talk about global temperature average increases, as two degrees, it's actually four degrees on our temperature range at the moment. So I think for South Africa, we are we have such a complex weather system, and over time, that's going to change, and we can see it in little increments um, with the cyclone off the coast of Mozambique that just took place, um, with the the essentially the drought that happened in the Western Cape for almost three years, and the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape. Um, the intensification of certain natural phenomena that take place. And as a country, we're not as resilient when it comes to dealing with 
immediate impacts because our systems are not um, as well developed as they could be. And I think about it in the sense of, obviously we are all um, living through this global pandemic. And when you start from a basis where in South Africa's case, the health system wasn't the best it could be, you starting from like a, a minus range. And at the moment with our climate change impacts, we are having the impacts, but the environment, the global environmental change is not high on the agenda um, on the South African um, political and policy front. And we can see that right now because we're obviously dealing with the health crisis, we're dealing with social inequality, we're dealing with unemployment, but there are ways to leverage those um, issues that we're facing as the people of South Africa um, and also put the environmental lens over it. And by that, I mean, when we look at trying to build new economies for employment, we can look at greener, more sustainable, long-term job creation for people. Um, so it doesn't hurt the environment, nor does it hurt um, the actual citizens of the country. Um, and we can engage in a more holistic way in that regard. Yeah, and I looked at some policy last year, and um, South Africa has a huge amount of policy around protecting various parts of the environment, but they don't currently have a climate change law. And also a lot of that policy is not gender inclusive, so it doesn't take into account different types of vulnerabilities. And what is South Africa getting right, and what are we getting wrong about our response to climate change so far? Um, what we're getting right is that we're actually taking the steps that are necessary. The, for example, we're looking at a national climate change bill, um, which would be when it's um, enacted, it would be an act. And so we would have that as a cross-cutting narrative to all policies that are put in place across all ministries. Um, that would be uh, looking at the climate change impacts. We have the national climate, uh, national adaptation strategy. At the moment, we're working on um, climate finance and dealing with it as its own area of of intervention, which is really important. And we we actually have a really good monitoring and reporting system. In theory, it's pretty much what we what we need is is more verifiable data and more of a mandate to receive data from all stakeholders. So um, not just businesses, um, not just big businesses, but smaller ones and trying to engage a little bit across the entire e economy. Um, and I think we also have, you know, we have the carbon tax, but I think it's, it's a little bit complex. And the question is, we don't ring fence as uh, as national treasury says so ring fencing is when you take um a certain amount of money that's uh, leveraged off um one um, industry for example in the climate change or the environmental sector and then you use it in the same sector um and so national treasury doesn't particularly allow ring fencing so the question is when we collect carbon tax will it be used for other industries and what does that mean for the actual transition away from a 
carbon-intensive economy. So I think there's quite a few things of when we look at things holistically, and as you rightly mentioned, it's not inclusive of vulnerable um, vulnerable groups in the country. It's not gender inclusive. It's and it's it's also quite broad, and I think that's where we lose. We we. We have the we don't lose anything. We actually have the ability to develop it further. We really can look at it from, from a more context-driven perspective and work across different areas of not just governments, but working with community-based organizations, working with um businesses that are trying to transition, um, looking not just from a policy point of view, looking at what can be done in um in a residential area, does it make sense to have, uh, for example, um, solar panels on roofs for certain um, for certain spaces, or you know, um, does does water usage also link up to where we're transitioning because we're a water scarce country? So there's so many different interventions, but we really aren't trying them yet um, on a bigger scale. So having more pilot projects on a larger scale. And so I think that's where we we almost a little bit stuck in the policy of trying to get the policy right as opposed to trying to figure out, does it work in reality? I think that's true in many sectors of South African policymaking, certainly in the gender space as well. And one of the things that often gets brought up is, okay, so forget about government for a second. What can the ordinary person do? How are environmental issues or climate change issues linked to my ordinary day-to-day life so if you could recommend like two steps that an ordinary person could take to at least make a human contribution to ending climate change or to mitigating and adapting to it what would those be so i think from a from a point of view of trying to look at the impact of individual action versus collective action i think we need to look in our communities um, and specifically supporting um, local industries, whether it's fruit um, vendors or um, people that sell vegetables. Um, Because the the larger industries that we start supporting, yes, they provide jobs for a a larger proportion of people, um, but they have that level of resilience um, to deal with small drop in sales and now this sounds a little bit more economic than it does for climate change but if you look at the carbon miles that are attributed to where fruit and vegetables are actually grown to the cold storage to then the distribution centers and then subsequently to them the big institutions you buy them from it's actually it's really high and i know a lot of organizations are trying to decrease it but if you could support um, small localized shops um, with your those those daily um, buys or weekly buys, um, you're decreasing your carbon footprint and also the value chain of a, a carbon footprint. I think a lot of people have looked at you know recycling, and I think that that's also a valid point. But reducing your waste at source. So if you could purchase something without plastic or without paper or without any sort of thing, having that on hand to do that. I guess it's the same with straws, but these are always individual actions. 
I think engaging deeply within your community, what can we do? Is there a way that we could, for example, save, um, save water? Maybe we could look at borehole water for um, certain aspects um, of gardening or wastewater, gray water systems. I think, if anything, um, the pandemic at the moment has taught me that I've gotten to know my neighbors. And um, when we were in level five, my one neighbor was baking bread for all of us and we were swapping different things to him and um, his partner giving haircuts. I mean, this was just in the evenings after work um, because we just tried to do stuff together and stay safe and keep our circle quite small. Um, and it was just a level of engagement that I think actually helped build mental resilience as opposed to physical and, and physical resilience, not opposed to. So engaging a little bit deeper in the system, I think my final one, and I know you asked for two, but engaging in the, in the policy system, we're all able to um, access parliament and um, as, a, as a citizen of the country. Um, and at the moment, I know going to parliament is not, is not allowed, so that's not a viable option, but um, the parliamentary monitoring group has um, information. Familiarize yourself with things that interest you about your country. I think becoming passive in those spaces um, is what's allowing um, the status quo to continue. And I think if you raise your voice, um, I would like to believe that at some point it, it is heard. And when you know who your, your district councillor is and you raise this issue of water management and those sort of things, it's not just about planting trees, which is definitely important. It's about wasting resources. So when we waste water um, because there's a broken pipe or there's inefficiencies, I mean, those are all things that make us less resilient to the climate impacts that that we're currently in. So buy local, participate and raise your voice and build relationships and community. I think those are all really good um, recommendations that we can each take small steps to fulfill. So people listening may be thinking, okay, we've been talking about climate change for like 20 minutes now and we haven't talked at all about feminism. So in, how, in your view, are feminism and environmental issues and climate change all linked together? I see them one in the same in terms of how we're approaching solutions. And we, I mean, and I can give you a clear example in terms of um, our energy system. At the moment, we're, we're looking at, yes, we want to transition from coal-fired um, energy generation to renewable energy. But what we are not talking about is if we just replace one large-scale um, one large-scale project that's fossil fuel driven with a large-scale um, renewable energy project, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily meet the needs of the people. So it doesn't allow a level of um, equity, of ownership and, and, and access. Um, so what we need to think about is, for me, when the solutions, when we look at the solution space in climate change, I think of it as looking at it um, in terms of feminism. So we want to transition a space and we want to transition from very extractive patriarchal um, uh, 
uh, and destructive way and looking at it as a, when we enter this solutions it should be one that's inclusive of of all genders of people with various abilities um, that speak to different uh, people with different economic standpoints um, and what does it actually mean for us to have access to electricity and sustainable electricity within the communities that need it? Can they generate it off their roofs? Um, can we look at more distributed systems of food and water um, and electricity? What else do we need to build sustainable lives and have and not just think about um, um, where we are where we are right now is a space that's trying to just transition the same system we have into one that's sustainable and the system itself is not working so this the sustainable transition doesn't really work and so when i think about it from a policy point of view or from a rights point of view it's the discussion of not just representation which is what i highlighted in my my essay, but something that I've learned subsequent since writing that it's not just about having more women um, or more people of color or more differently able people or um, different genders in the room. It's about it's about having access to people engaging in the solutions themselves and being listened to. Um, and those solutions being update, uh, being included um, in the decision process. And I mean, we look at, for example, it's the, the companies themselves are not transitioning um, in being more inclusive in more South African staff. Are there South African companies that um, actually take these issues that are not just tick box like how many women are in the com company or um, what does it mean for us to have, it was such an interesting discussion. When we had load shedding at the organization I work for, one of our colleagues said, do we have emergency lights for safety in the basement? And the head of security was like, oh, you know, there's one emergency light fire in like 30 parking bays. And um, she was like, but I don't feel safe to park my car during that time because I leave quite late um, and I don't feel safe. And it was sort of blown over. And, and I just thought to myself, how can we work on development and transition when we can't even get lighting right for people to feel safe? And that's the, because you think the, the importance is more about the load shedding itself. But it's someone's day-to-day -day experience that you're not listening to that actually can support a space that's more inclusive and that's such a that's such a silly example but it's it's so important um to think about that and level it up because everyone's voices need to be heard because they we shouldn't dull down their experiences because we haven't had experiences like that and i think that that for me is what it means to have a feminist ideology in a climate related space because you have to think about being inclusive and maybe it's not your lived experience but also understanding that 
every voice matters in the room. That's so true. And I don't think it's a silly example. I think it's a very practical example that can help people understand the various intersections of different uh, you know, societal situations of the impact of violence and safety. And when we're making plans to respond or adapt or mitigate climate change, then we need to be taking into account the real lived realities of people in the country. And so you're right, it's not just having a tick box number of people, it's about getting their voices heard and actually taking into account how the policies will affect them in implementation. So to move a little bit back now from um, really practical advice to some theoretical advice, do you have any books that you could recommend that people engage with either to learn more about climate change or that have influenced you in shaping your ideas around feminism? The ones that come to mind, um, which doesn't necessarily seem like climate change related work, and I don't think all environmental reading um, actually takes feminism into account. But I really found reading feminist literature like um, Audre Lorde or Angela Davis, learning about different intersectional movements and what it meant to be a, a feminist about advocating for rights um, allowed me to then look at, for example, Wangari Maathai um, and look at that from a, from a different point of view. Um, and then there were different authors like um, Jared Diamond, Yuva Noah Harare, that also provided like a more, a more long-term perspective of what decisions right now actually mean. And I think one of the most important books for me um, was this book called, it was, it's called Deep Slut by Anton Haber. And I read this quite a long time ago, um, which talks about the actual area of Deep Slut in Johannesburg. Um, and there was at one point a special area of, um, that was like a, a wetland that had a specific type of frog that was endangered. And what that, were the people important? Was the frog important? What really needed to happen there? Um, and at the point, and I read this subsequently since then, because when I started in the environmental movement, I think I started a little bit more radical that environmental justice was the most important aspect. And it was later on that I, I realized through engaging a little bit more with not just writing and reading, uh, but with people, um, that we make up the fabric of our society. And that sounds uh, like a normal thing to understand, but it was all our decisions have implications. Um, and whether you're working as, a, as an accountant or support staff or different services, you know, um, it actually, when you think about your day-to-day -day lives um, and how you engage with people around you with kindness and compassion and understanding, um, and at the same time realizing that we're all human and we have to, we all think that we are quite complex and we have all these various 
um, aspects to juggle in our lives, but everyone does. Um, and to understand that and say, well, what is my role and responsibility um, in my community? And um, how can I best serve when I can serve? I think um, after working in the environmental sector, there's also, I mean, and I think that there's quite a lot of that in different industries where you try and push so hard because you really believe in the task at hand and you don't take care of your mental health. And that also doesn't serve you in the long run. So I think um, those are the ones that come to mind. But um, yeah, I, I think that there's things that speak to you um, around feminism. And obviously, um, and feminism is was such a great anthology but when I read Living Wilds Feminist, uh, it was it was probably one of my best reads reading South African literature. Um, but then realizing that it wasn't just me that was experiencing some of these these aspects. It's there's so many people that do it, and you don't feel so alone. And I think that's what writing and reading can actually do is help you um, articulate yourself and your feelings. Definitely. Do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? All Who Wonder Are Not Lost by J.R.L. Tolkien. Um, I, I heard it like quite a long time ago when I was 10. And it really made me want to dig deep into my creative aspects, but more importantly, realize that sometimes uncertainty, as much as it's jarring, can provide a little bit of um, insight into yourself so just you know be ex- be an explorer for the world and yourself yes exactly mm-hmm. and then my final question to you today is do you have any advice for feminists on their journeys I think listening um, and learning um, is obviously something that while you're on your journey you're definitely doing but realizing that we all have challenges um, and we all trying our best. Um, and I remember thinking about this because when I reread my essay, I was like, no. And then I was like, pass Nioka, what have you done? Um, and then realized like, that's the whole process of learning. You, There's no perfect version. At the time, I thought it was something that I wanted to say and now, I've learned and I've grown. And I think it's also important to forgive yourself or your past selves um, for things that you might not have understood, but also being humble enough to admit it. Um, Because I think that that breaks down the patriarchy in a whole different way because there's so much ego attributed to self and knowing and being that then you are humble, compassionate, and understanding, and people accept you for who you are, I find like that is a way that you can highlight who you are and who your being is um, in, in a world that's sometimes not accepting of it. So stay flexible. 
stay flexible. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nyoka, for taking the time to chat with me today and to talk about these really important issues and for the work that you're doing. I know that it can feel like knocking your head against a brick wall in the policy space, but every little chip matters. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jen. It was lovely. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>